0: All right, so today we're going to be talking about permaculture and the future. Because permaculture, you know, a lot of people will sell permaculture as a bundle of techniques. It is not. It is simply a lens that anyone, a small child, an old person, a person who's stuck in their ways can understand and grasp very easily, and it's how we apply the ethics and the principles of permaculture that actually defines what it is in real life. um, Who am I? Uh, you might not know who I am. Uh, I was a musician in New York City. I played with these guys, um, played with uh, people like these guys for many years. And then I met my wife, and my life took a turn and I started focusing more on family. And uh, pretty quickly into our marriage, uh, my wife had a health crisis. Um, she, uh, was diagnosed with thyroid cancer, and we removed her thyroid, and we did radiation to ablate it. And totally changed our lives, because three months after the radiation, she got melanoma, extensive melanoma. Um, and it almost reached her lymph nodes, it was so extensive, and then we had to do uh, a lot of things, and then a couple years later, it came back. Um, and then we did uh, the Gerson therapy, and that was the only thing that really, um, prevented it from coming back. Um, so we had to do fundamentally uh, different things with our diet. Um, but in the course of that, I left New York City when moved out west. I became a school teacher uh, so I could be closer to home, spend more time with my wife, and, and, and take care of my family. Uh, I was kind of a, uh, an English uh, teacher that abnormal. Um, I would teach uh, <coughs> cooking, gardening, and I was also credentialed in history, and I also taught uh, music production and songwriting. And during that time period, I really got hooked on seeds. I really, really love seeds. Um, and so I wanted the best of the best food for my kids and for my wife so that we could grow old and we could you know, see our grandkids together. And so permaculture, this idea of permanent cultures, permanent agriculture, this whole thing, really appealed to me. Uh, and so I really took it on and I started managing a garden that was two acres uh, with a knife and um, I started dry farming in like 140-degree soils um, in California in the middle of the drought and this is three months in so um, I wrote a book about permaculture because I realized that it was inaccessible to children which I thought because I was a school teacher didn't make sense that we were just catering to 20-somethings who were finding themselves and then people who were retiring because they didn't—they needed to be sustainable so that they could make their retirement last, right? Um, and of course, there's people who those—they overlap between those people were that they cared about the environment and their food. Um, but we tend to all actually care about our environment and our food when it's in our face and when we realize it. Uh, no one wants to live next to a you know uh, a coal a power plant if it's dusting their house. They can see it. They know it. I mean. You know, uh, that's why the 70s laws focused on visible things, because those are the things that people noticed. Um, So I wrote this book, and it was originally for kids. And the adults were like, you wrote it in 8th grade language? This is my language! And they all bought it. And so suddenly me asking for, and that is $9,000 I only asked for, turned into 26. And it was like, okay, you just made the same amount of money you make in a year of teaching in a month with a book that you know will help people. What are you doing teaching English? You know what I mean? Because they're not even paying attention, you know, right? (laughs) I had a good class. I I exaggerate. I I actually, uh, in my county, uh, I was the only uh, sophomore English uh, class that didn't use homework, and we had the highest scores in the county. So uh, just, you know, authentic teaching means that you don't need to go home and practice. 'Cause they actually learned it. Yeah. You're actually yeah. doing your job. Stuck the first time. <laughs> right, it's stuck the first time. If we go out and learn, go in the woods and we you know, we do something together, like we cut down a tree or we plant a forest or something like that. You don't go home and like practice that like with imaginary plants and you're like, Yeah, we did it with Legos <laughs> and now I feel better. No, no, that never happens, right? So these books exploded basically and they're on on every continent except Antarctica right now. Um, they're being translated into tons and tons of languages, this is Spanish um, that's most recently been used. Am I blocking you? Do I need to... You are, but I'm, I'm kind I can, of I can watching it out. in the mirrors, so that works. Alright, I'll stand like here. Okay. So uh, this is the Spanish version. James, do you want to be my clicker? Oh, thank you. Um, next slide. So these are the five translations. that uh, two, Three of them are out right now. Two of them I'm still formatting. Swahili is being done right now. That's going to be one that I give away completely free and make open source. Um, the, I might have to just give it away free because of the licensing complications with some of the uh, artwork. Because they won't let me uh, give it away free. Um, so it's OK. I'll just do it. I'm working on that. This is the first high school permaculture textbook ever um, the people reading uh, it are and reviewing it are saying that it can be used at city colleges junior colleges uh, and most uh, introductory college programs that are dealing with ecology um, agriculture or permaculture so it kind of, I meant it to be a high school but the more I travel the country and the more I talk to other teachers and talk about what they're actually learning in schools the more I realize that Some people's high schools, some people's graduate schools. Uh, We don't even realize it because we're not communicating. And they try to make it seem like it's uniform or like we've got standards, but that's really baloney. Um, So I wrote this book uh, with uh, over 22 different peer reviewers and editors. And I say peer editors because I didn't finish writing and get a review for a blurb on the back of my book. Instead, I partnered with these people who are experts in their own fields to create something that's beyond my ability. I'm a curriculum expert. I have a master's degree in education. I'm really good at that stuff. Does that mean that I know chemistry? No. I'm learning it through the people I'm working with, one-on-one, like Dr. Uh, Elaine Ingham, who's uh, the person who wrote the Soul Primer for the USDA. She's amazing. She's an amazing teacher. Um, But I need these people to teach me and help me. Because they have 20, 30 years' experience in some cases and multiple PhDs. So um, I work with a lot of people and I try to include as many people as I can because that's the only way I can verify what's going on is more ubiquitous. It's the only, and I try to use as many, I've translated things from other languages, studies, and, and scientific papers because we need to have as much information cross-referencing citations as possible. Uh, in permaculture, if you just start looking through the books, uh, there's hundreds of them now um, on Amazon or wherever, you'll find that very few of them have citations to academic studies. So that's particularly something I was focused on, cared about. On the flip side, we need children to have stuff, too. So I do it. I'm focused on K through 12 and college, too. So. This is uh, this is like a reference, like, you know, the Richard Scary books, like, all over town and different identifying things and a little explanation of what it is. That's what the book is on the left, you know, fourth, fifth grade, maybe third grade. And then the Magic Beans is a story-based thing that, you know, any age small child can enjoy. And it's about, you know, the legacy of heirloom seeds in a family and the power of beans in the garden. So just stuff like that, be making it story-based. I'm working on this uh, story called The Forgotten. It might be in here, we'll see it later, I think. So I better hurry up. All right, so I met Jer, uh, Jer Gettle. You guys know Baker Creek Seed? My booth um, uh, features all their stuff right now. Um, I am currently working for them. I just started like two months ago. Jer is a good friend of mine. He convinced me to move out to Missouri from California. And so now I work for Baker Creek and I do these live (laughs) afternoon shows every day, weekdays at three three o'clock central time. And so I do uh, and he's talks. talk What? Eddie's a vegetarian. And he's a vegetarian. Uh, oh, oh, Jer? Jer's vegan, yeah. Hey, you? Tom, welcome to Missouri. What? Welcome to Missouri. Thanks. <laughs> so glad you're here, seriously. <laughs> oh, thanks. Yes. <laughs> well, it's very fun to be here. I like, I like teaching, and so that's something I do for them. Um, and so let's just quickly cover what is permaculture, because there's a lot of different definitions, a lot of different understanding of where it came from. Uh, Really, it starts with J. Russell Smith and this idea of a permanent agriculture. Tree crops, perennials. This idea of making it so that we are connected to perennial, like, timescales, generational thinking, not just an annual timescale, because there's so much more stability in that, right? Um, so it went from permanent agriculture to permanent culture at a certain point in the '70s, which came out of a thought exercise between this university professor and this student of his. Let me see if I can move that a little bit. Okay, will that be easier, or am I making it worse? You're Okay, um, I might even switch sides. So um, David Holmgren was his student, and he was brilliant. He's still with us. Uh, Bill is not. They started off with ethics. And the three ethics, um, they're universal ethics they discovered in the longest lasting cultures. They boiled them down. They're things that we kind of all agree on. Taking care of the earth, taking care of people. And return of surplus was Bill's initial uh, manifestation. Uh, I use care of future, because surplus is very um, economic. And then uh, David. Introduce this idea of fair share, and it gets way too political. So, return of surplus, economic fair share is very um, it, it 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 gets people who uh, get very upset about socialism up in arms, and then you have this whole—it's very distracting as it is. Care of the future—the—the—is is a universal concept that you see in like the Japanese business plans that look for a hundred years at least. It's also the Iroquois seven generations idea. So, and it captures this whole idea that we have to return surplus to guarantee our future, right? Um, we have to feed different things. So there's these principles. The original principles, and this is very important, the original principles started off as five principles. And the, um, these are in Bill's book, work with nature, the problem is sol- the solution. Make the least change for maximum effect. The yield of the system is theoretically unlimited. That's the most awkward one to say. And everything gardens. And then, this is what David did in the aughts. I think 2004, 2001. Um, 2002, there we go, close. So, he did 12. And these tend to be interpreted because they're less clear. Obtaining yield, well, you have to attain a yield, but produce no waste. Well, what's yield? What's waste? What are you actually saying? Because that could be interpreted. Everything makes waste. All, land, but it just becomes a product for another cycle. You know what I mean? So that that, that came out, and that that's helped somewhat. It's also created some confusion. I mean, I have over twelve. Uh, I have over twelve. I have over twenty different uh, principles in my book, and I have social principles. The reality is there are infinite numbers of principles depending on what we're talking about. If it's a microclimate, it's going to have its own unique principles. You know what I mean? So, it's important to understand that these things are in constant development because it's a lens, that it's an ethical lens, and then we're driving principles for our own situation and our own environments. And there are universal principles like we were talking about, but as we get focused and more close to what is our biome, We'll start discovering principles that are Central Valley or Missouri, you know what I mean? And those are biome specific. So, um, and that's also why there's so much confusion within those permaculture books that are the, by the hundred on Amazon because they're like, this is permaculture in my backyard of Oregon, but buy my book anyway, you know what I mean? And it's like, that's you and your little biome, you know, and that's cool, but we can't like just extrapolate everything from that. You know, we got to see a bigger picture. What's awesome is this is spreading at a rapid rate. We have this entering academia, um, I think it's probably the fastest growing um, thing in academia right now um, because it's regenerative and it also um, is static in a way. Like that technology and um, IT is not. If you guys know IT programs right now in schools and colleges, they're debating whether to scrap them. Meanwhile, IT's going crazy, but they're talking about scrapping them because they can't keep up financially with the constant new, new technology. And then the skills they taught that kid in college who thought, I understand, goes out into the work world and they've already left them behind as they were studying. So they're turning to this because this doesn't change, it's the world. You know, I mean, obviously it changes and we all have to constantly adapt, but that's the point, is that the idea of adaptation, of the, of the idea of cycling, all these different things are universal. And there's actual critical thinking, actual real nature, actual real science, you know, instead of it just being on paper. So it's huge, it's spreading right now, hundreds of books, and it, all it is is seeing the world through nature's eyes. And that's why a child can do it. So we can teach it to all our kids. That's why I can apply it to all of our business, all of our science, all of our buildings. It doesn't matter. It's just seeing the world through nature's eyes so that it cycles. So that it helps people at the same time. Um, and what do I mean by that? I mean this. OK, this is the Lost Plateau Project. How many people have heard of this? How many people have gone on Google Earth and actually tried to prove it to themselves? I did. i scanned all over. And it's there, and it's real, and it covers so much land, Matt. Yes. For your information, that big Lois strain there. We have one that runs from here all the way up to South Dakota. Huh. It's probably second to that one. I mean, that I kind have. of earth is here. What do you mean? Oh, you mean the the Yes. Yes. Of course it is. Yes. Yes. I thought the you meant strain. like we already done this project. Of mm-hmm. like, no. No. This big strain of that stuff mm-hmm. right here. Yeah, and so it's, it's actually very fertile. Yeah. So I'm going to come back here because I'm going to refer to this specifically. So this is a meme I made a, a short while ago. What's so cool is this is the third version of this. And I say it's so cool because social media generated all these conversations, discussion, and extra research that led to me discovering that there were two Los Plateau projects. And then there was a third effect that got snowballed into it that people don't realize. The first project was for 15,600 15, square kilometers, and it was for 150 grand. The next one was for 500,000, uh, 500, and then it was on 35,000 uh, 35, square kilometers. And then what happened was it turned into a project that covered over 500,000 acres because it went viral. And they literally changed the laws in China. And so. You may hear there's a lot of weird um, rumors that are like circulating about China and this. And I work with actual people who live there and have worked on these projects. And you can actually go on Google Earth and look at them. Um, what happened was they ruled that everything over 20% grade, 20% and above, had to be trees and shrubs. And you couldn't graze it. And when they did that, it fundamentally changed everything and revegetation started like crazy. And what they did here was they did terraces, they did earthworks, and they basically and used perennials, and they turned an area that was desertifying for over 10,000 years, where the Han Dynasty began, where agriculture began in China, they turned it around in nine years. So we're talking about an area that is, you know, 500,000 square kilometers. Um, That means that they spent, Oh well, let's back it up because that's not even the money they spent. Remember, they only spent uh, $500,000 on the 35. (laughs) The other stuff was all on the locals, right? They inspired a change that was gigantic by starting small and proving it. And that budget, that means that they spent $143 over 10 years per hectare. That's that's fourteen dollars a year per hectare. That's you know that's totally totally possible. We can do that. Two acres. Uh, yeah. Right. Right. So um, it's by word of mouth. We have to spread this stuff because it is possible. And I'm going to talk about things today that you can share with people that are going to change their worldview. Okay. So you know why does this matter to my garden? They were farming. All these areas, you know all these problems, desertification, soil loss, water scarcity, deforestation, food security, scarcity, nutritional deficiency, habitat loss, mass extinction, and all of our climate change are all related to agriculture and grazing on a fundamental basis. Okay? Um, obviously, the burning of, of fossil fuels is a part of it, and I'll get there. But these are all we're dealing with desertification from our ancestors. Not our parents. Okay? Uh, The Middle East. The fertile fertile valley, right? We're talking about the the fertile crescent, I mean. Um, Why was it fertile? Why is it not? You know what I mean? The Sahara was once a savanna. Where did all those animals come from for the Romans to slaughter? Again and again and again. Thousands a day. Where did all those animals come from? North Africa. The Barbary lions, which are featured in my new book, The Forgotten Food Forest, which will be out this year, they're featured in there because they're gone, but they're the national animal of Morocco. Those are the lions that Daniel was fed to, or tried to um, So desertification leads to man-made deserts, and there's other deserts, right? So the West Plateau, the Mediterranean, is desertifying right now. Uh, the American West is desertifying. The Amazon is desertifying. Um, so we're making these man-made deserts. Um, and so in my garden, I'm training seeds to grow in this heat. This is horizontal red Aztec spinach. This is the same seed that Baker Creek now offers. It comes from me. Um, it's awesome. This is an eat-all green. You can eat the whole plant. It's related to lamb's quarter, so the deer ignore it. The seeds are like quinoa but smaller and lack saponins so you don't have the leaky gut syndrome people being like oh no I can't do that. So uh, uh, it is not it is an annual and it's an amazing amazing crop. Uh, it doesn't show the pink as much here you see a lot of the brown but um, it's like hot pink when you give it water and uh, and this is, this is just showing you. This soil is 140 degrees. You can kind of tell that it's beaten. We're in the middle of Central Valley, but it's green in there. It's amazing. And it produced seed. And this, this is even more incredible. This is orange giant amaranth. I had been training this this seed for a couple of years. You can see that there's bare soil. This is where the cut was, when we created a fire break because our neighbor's fields burned and then the other neighbor's house burned down. All in one summer. And so they cut We cut a fire break, and this sprouted after the fire break, which means we were already a month into summer, which means there was no more rains. It sprouted and made a full seed head this long, and it's food. It's edible. Oh, amaranth is absolutely edible, and the seeds are delightful. Pop it like popcorn. And you can pop it like popcorn. (laughs) So, (laughs) this, this shows you that patch, 140 degrees. This is watered but bare in my garden, where it's watered twice a day. It's still 115. And then, or no, 18, sorry. 15 would, no, that's more like 16. All right, so this is mulch. That's 78. Pretty big swing and it's just a soil thermometer. I just felt like I needed to go out and check this, you know, because I had never seen anyone do that. We can all do this, you know what I mean? So this is what permaculture is. It's applied principles and ethics. Um, And so I want to talk today about a regenerative future, now that you understand where I'm coming from. Uh, And let's define what that means. So a regenerative future would be a future of exponential, regenerative, restoration, regeneration, restoration, adaptation, and improvement as a whole. That's a concept that's basically uh, been around for a while, but it's hard for uh, reductionists and deconstructionists, which is what we're taught in all higher learning. It's hard for us to grasp. We've been trained in the wrong direction. Generalism is now becoming much more valuable. It's the ability to move through information rather than be siloed in one branch of information, which is what we are raised and trained to do. And now we're in a, this point where, where we have to bridge this gap. So um, and this includes the environment, people, systems, and our collective future as well, right? that, that lens. So really, we're talking about three, three different tiers. We're talking about the ecological um, regenerative future. We're talking about economic, and we're talking about social. Because if you do not include those three things, it won't move. And that's, I think, part of the problem with a lot of these things. We keep just attacking a piece of it, and then it doesn't move. Wangari Maathai, the Nobel Peace Prize winner, um, the uh, the Green Belt Movement in Africa, she involved women who traditionally were not doing gardening or growing trees or handling seeds. She involved in that and empowered them, and it fundamentally changed their entire society. And it continues to. Because women saw themselves as powerful, as influential, and able to change the world around them. And once that happened, it changed everything. The the colonialists uh, may not have been there, but their mindset was still embedded in the men in government. And so she had to shoot in on the moms of uh, political prisoners. uh, Actually, at one point, did a hunger strike. Um, And at the end of the hunger, well, there was a. There was a violent uh, breaking up of that. But then um, they hid out in the bottom of a church and continued uh, their protest for a year. And then the prime minister or the president, I can't remember which, um, literally stepped down because of this woman and her standing with nature and convincing the entire country to stand with nature. And now the military talks about how they have trees are their brother and how we must protect the earth as much as we protect our people. So, anyway, uh, tangent, I do that sometimes. So, carbon sequestration, carbon sequestration through agriculture. Now, this is a concept we've probably heard about, um, but have you run through the numbers? Have we gone through the science? Um, I always hear, we can just do it in under 10 years. (laughs) Right? No. Okay, let's talk a little bit more. What if our soils run out? This is actually becoming uh, finally mainstream. Um, so, if we just go here, this is Time Magazine, um, we have 60 years left of topsoil, oh no, 58, that was a few years ago, uh, farming methods that strip the soil of carbon. So what our farming methods do is strip the soil of carbon, alright. So that's what those sections were, alright, so let's talk about carbon in the atmosphere. This is the thing we're all worried about right here, is the fact that our carbon levels are skyrocketing, right? And it's imbalancing, imbalancing our, in, our atmosphere. But what is what is carbon? So we have low levels of organic matter in the soil, and that's why our topsoils are so depleted. But carbon is organic matter. A lot of people don't get this connection. And that's what makes it so simple to fix. Um, did you guys know that the um, the amount of field corn we grow takes in 400 times the amount of carbon dioxide we release from burning every year? Bet you didn't know that. You know, the thing is Ratan Lal does a great job. This is from Bioscience in 2010, does a great job. But this information isn't getting out and when people use it they don't talk about how we're talking of mathematical possibilities. We're simply talking about what's Mathematically possible. So the problem is, is, yeah, it does take all that carbon into itself. 97% of a corn's, uh, of a corn's uh, structure is made out of air, carbon dioxide. Um, but what happens if we let it oxidize in the field or we turn it into ethanol and burn it? You know? We're not actually sequestering it. And the only places we can sequester carbon on this earth are inside biology. So, um, we really can't just keep, you know, use fossil fuels to make eco-bricks out of carbon dioxide and then be like, yeah, we did it, that won't work. We can't burn to, it's like that whole thing where they're, uh, they're trying to you know, sequester carbon so they're burning their weeds in the field and it's like, you know, like the, the thing where they're burning on the field, yeah. So you can't, it's got to go into something alive. Because we're all made of carbon. That's what organic chemistry is about. It's anything that has carbon in it. That's us, too. Um, So it's got to go back into the soils. And the soils can accommodate that. And I'm going to talk about that uh, in a second. Um, So what do you think happened here? How much carbon do you think is being sequestered here? Tons. Tons. 500. (laughs) It's no till it's 500,000 square kilometers of no-till. It's crazy. And so there's a lot of people working on this in different parts of the world. This is my good friend, Neil Speckman. Um, he's using check dams. He's using swales. Um, in the middle of Saudi Arabia. Barren. Three years, using less than the amount of rainwater they get each year to water. They're they're sinking more water into the the aquifers than they're using on their plants. Positive water budget. And he's proven how this could actually spread across the entire kingdom of uh, of, uh, Saudi Arabia's peninsula. All down those mountains could be commercial farms that are profitable, that are actually run by the Bedou so they can actually continue their culture and continue their grazing and their, their uh, animal husbandry, which is very important for them. And that's the reason the landscape so awful, because they grazed it to death. Uh, and then what happened when, the, when they settled all the tribes? They weren't allowed to shift, so they finished it off and they killed the land. It's happened many, many times. I mean, every time we come to uh, we, we, uh, you know Western civilization approaches a civilization with no fences, no borders, and everyone's moving around falling resources, just like nature, right? Nomadic nature. Um, we do this and it causes these problems. but we, we have ways to fix that. Uh, so do you guys know who Dr. Elaine Ingham is? She's my solo mentor. She's amazing. Um, her and her husband, I like to include her husband uh, because I only learned about that more recently. Um, her husband's still at OSU; they're still doing research together. Um, they have got an exper- experimental farm in Oroville. She's the person who wrote the soil primer for the USDA. She's also the person that discovered, um, with her husband and other researchers in the 80s, that you know, there's good nematodes. There's predator nematodes that are good. Um, there's not just root feeders. Uh, and if you've probably seen a picture like this, this is mine, but you've probably seen the standard one that has that tannish background that is, everyone seems to use when they talk about the soil food web. It doesn't have enough arrows. <laughs> it doesn't show you enough what's going actually on. Um, there's no arrow between fungi and bacteria on it, and believe me, they they work together, they interact. So, um, this is scobias, right? So, uh, she is working and consulting on sites where they're, you know, sequestering um, six tons of carbon per acre and growing two to three feet of soil a year. Crazy, impressive. Where is that? South Africa. But she's done stuff all over. I mean, she's she's done a Dufal farm in Saudi Arabia, and then she's done a vineyard in Aus- uh, no, uh, that- that's sorry, and then Australia, she did a vineyard in the middle of Australia in the desert region. She did a vineyard with no irrigation. So if the soil life is there, it will retain water. If you don't cut it, if you just, you know, you keep laying the organic matter on, mulching, it's going to retain the moisture. Um, but yeah, she's absolutely incredible. Uh, she uh, is one of my main editors. So this is from Alan Yeoman's Priority One. This is really interesting. And yes, this was 2005, so remember all these numbers are always constantly exponentially growing and changing. The extra carbon dioxide causing global warming equates to 0.007 inches, 0.18 millimeters of carbon spread over the whole planet, but we only control 8.5% of the planet's surface. So if if we can just sink that carbon into the soils on that 8.5% that we control in agriculture, it would only be 2.1 millimeters thick of soot. It's biochar. So soil, organic soil matter, it's the same thing. So it literally is, 5% organic matter soils, um, it's less than one third of that amount of carbon we're talking about. So, so it's a third of a of a five percent. So let's, not two percent for just you know, sake of argument. Um, and you have two percent more than five percent. That's seven percent. That's still not very good soil. If all of our agricultural soils got up to twenty percent organic matter, we would see so much drawdown. And if we stop tilling, and I say tilling, but I don't mean harrowing or ripping or subsoil. If we invert the soil and pulverize it, that's what I mean by tilling. Otherwise, you're you, 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 you're you're um, you're okay. So things are concerning, but they're correctable for now. Um, we need to revegetate. So this is something I mentioned to someone earlier. The green parts, uh, what's remaining, and this obviously is an older picture. So there's less now, um, and the. Uh, Tannish parts the non the uh, the non forest, but eight thousand years ago, all of that, all of this, um, you know, off green color stuff, all of this, all of that, all of Europe, they were forest, and that's where that's where we're all from. We're from a world covered in forest. This is a, another pretty good one. So we have gone from a country that was half covered in forest to not covered in forest. We also need to be thinking about rewilding. And this is a concept that concerns people sometimes um, because they're like, but wait, wolves will just eat everything. You know what I mean? And it's like, well, you know, the reason that the oak savanna has not returned and doesn't persist and is disappearing to become one of the most fragile and uh, rare ecosystems in North America is because there's too many deer. They're eating all the oaks, uh, acorns, and, and, and saplings. And that's the reason. So, um, we need to bring back predators. And, 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 and by the way, there's so many predators. I mean, we, we talk about like the predators we know, but then just study a little bit of like, you know like the history of 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 animals and stuff and you'll realize like all the predators are gone they're gone i mean 10,000 years ago we had predators everywhere not anymore so um they were part of the recycling cycling machine um we need to rewild our streams and this is something that uh is often not talked about in permaculture it feels like they're scared of water Um, but uh we need to liberate our streams in california everything's locked up in concrete and it's all running to the ocean. So any water they get, they lose. It's really, really a big problem. All the um, the runoff that was supposed to come to my homestead was rerouted above us where it accumulates up, up high and then run down through pipes to create energy to sell to us and then water to give to the farmers. Or the cities where they just flush it once. Drives me nuts. So yeah, California has made their own bed, and I just feel sad that some of them that don't know that have to sleep in it too. Um, So we need to uh, rewild our streams. We need to induce meander. We need to slow things down so that life can come back. That's what the beavers are doing. They're slowing that river down, right? So that life can start coming back. We need to do that. We need to also rewild our health, our diets, our lifestyles. We cannot expect our children to sit for 20 years and be healthy. We don't even need to do anything else when we talk about our kids. They can't sit in a classroom for 8 hours a day for 20 years. That just doesn't work. And by the way, a lot of schools don't even have gym anymore yeah yeah they just keep them in their cubicles and they keep someone a guard watching them ah. so yeah our diet and our health also needs to be rewilded it needs to be And guys you know wild food is like super nutritious has all these things that we bred out it's like oh well that sweetness in your corn that's empty of nutrients yeah it's pleasing in that moment that you eat it but compared to that black corn from peru that's much closer to its ancestor uh, it's just night and day. One's healthy and one's just sort of okay. You know? So, economic. The solar economy is the foundation of everything. The sun provides plants, right? The animals eat the plants and then the other animals eat those animals. That's the economy and everything breaks down into soil. So, um, polyphase farm, uh, Joel Saladin, we talked about Daniel Saladin, it's a grass culture farm. They focus on their soil and their and their, their their grasses as the indicators of the health of their soil. And then their animals are a secondary thing that goes on that base economy. Okay? Um, they also do chickens. It's, it's all based around grass, though. And and he, he wants it that way so that he has stability because the sun's not going to run out. And as long as he keeps his cycle going, he's not going to run out either. Algae culture. Um, has anyone heard of Veta La Palma? Uh, it's a. It's one of the largest. Uh, well, all right. It's a fish farm, in I believe Spain, or Portugal. I can't remember right now. Um, and it is one of the largest bird sanctuaries in North America. There's a TED Talk on it called "How I Fell in Love with a Fish." Some of you probably recognize it now. Um, and what they do is they focus on the algae. They focus on the sun and the water and the health of the actual waterways. So they're, it's all. That it's, it's, it was actually it was canals that they, um, that they flooded that were once used um, for cattle, and they brought back all the water, and they brought back all the life, and they literally let the birds feed. They do not drain this and take all of the fish out. It's not like that. Instead, they're only taking the abundance of a system of nature that just generates more abundance. And that's the other side. That's where we all want to get to. We're stuck on the side where we're like, and then I add amendments and then I get the food and then, oh, I've got to add more amendments and I get the food and then, oh, no, I'm losing, right? We're stuck in this losing, gambling game. It's because we don't understand the way nature actually works. And then the seed economy. So the seed economy was the original human economy. What happened was, at a certain point, um, we had two, we started collecting seeds. And then we were like the perennial gardeners, where we would follow, uh, you guys know that uh, mastodons were the, the driver from perennial and annual, right? They were the ones ripping out trees and eating them, and we'd follow behind them, then the annuals would grow, and that's where our original annuals came from. Right. Okay. Anyway, the reason we started burning things and started doing agriculture was ten thousand years the mastodons disappeared from the earth. And so we had to take over. They went extinct. So the primary, annual, perennial, tearing up, disturbing the soil stopped happening. And there was about a hundred year, two hundred year period of time where we're figuring things out, and then agriculture's here all over the world. All of a sudden. So that's why we did that. But seeds, yeah, we started getting extra seeds, we started saving seeds, and what happened? Well, we started trading seeds. I have so many seeds, I'm gonna start trading them. We started playing with seeds, started experimenting with seeds. Started mashing it up, mixing it with water, and then making porridge, and then we started doing things like eating too much, having celebrations, (laughs) and then, oh wait, you left out the porridge. I don't want to eat the porridge, but uh, it's all bubbly, I don't want to eat it, you know? And then they're like, fine, just put it by the fire and cook it, and turn it into bread right the wild yeast were making it bubbly. Oh they made juice, so much juice ah, well, juice got left out. Oh I don't want to eat that juice it's all funky and bubbly. Fine I'll eat it. I like this juice. Mm-hmm. Alcohol. We literally came from this world of abundance leading to expression. Abundance leading to innovation. That's where we're from. That's our home. where we belong. We belong on the abundance side of things. So with that thought in mind. Today, we work for money to spend money on food, and we participate in the economy of the dollar. My kids, their future isn't looking so hot. Because you know there's going to be less jobs. Yeah, there are less jobs. The jobs are less reliable. There's less money at those jobs. Uh, there's more inflation for the dollar, and there's more hours we have to work to get paid less. That's a losing proposition. And then, on top of that, we have crop failures. Food prices are skyrocketing. Foodborne illnesses are going crazy, and nutrition is dropping. So, we have to pay more money for food that's worse. That's a losing proposition for my kids, and I can't accept that. And no one should accept that. We should be able to fix this. So. And you know, It makes us all sad when we kind of look this in the face because the reality is we want to work less and spend less and that means shrinking the economy of the dollar which seems controversial but actually is what we want. Because there's this other economy, <coughs> the seed economy, which is the original economy before paper dollar came into effect, before pieces of metal came into effect. This was the original economy. What happens? Alright, well we spend money on seed or we spend our bartering or whatever on seed and then participate in this. What comes out of this? Well you get exponential growth in your food, your seeds, your nutrition, your health and your wealth. And then over time it shrinks the dollar even more. And what what is replaced by that dollar economy, the stability of that dollar? Well you get food stability in your societies. You get peace because every war and every conflict is based around resources. I mean, you go look what they're actually fighting over in the Middle East, a lot of times it's water. You know, they may use language that is religious, or, but it's really they're fighting over resources. I mean, go look at their landscape. It's desperate. So, prosperity comes out of peace and stability. You can't build during war. And we've been at war a very long time. So in an economy in, in kind of infinite growth is absolutely possible. And it has infinite potential too. We just have to start embracing it. Uh, local businesses also work this way. Uh, decentralization is also another one of those words that scares people, but it really is localization. Which is not so much of a scary thing. That's like hanging out more with you know your neighbors and uh, going to your friends' businesses and supporting a local CSA, you know and it really actually centers around farmers. They are the backbone. Um, and so like, what, do we, what do they represent? Well, they represent freedom because they represent um, self-reliance, um, which is independence. We couldn't declare our independence from Britain unless we could be self-reliant, unless we could provide our own food, which is freedom. Uh, and entrepreneurism, the ability to generate your own business as well. Um, so, food, fiber, fuel, and medicine are farm-based. Um, we may have processing, and we may have factories that take all these things and make other things out of them. But all—I the, mean—farmers can provide all this. We don't need to be mining it and combining those kinds of things. We don't need to be synthesizing those things. Um, so, a regenerative economy. Is what we actually need. And so it needs to be soil to soil. Has anyone heard of the Fiber Shed? This is a nonprofit organization. Um, it is soil to soil uh, textiles and clothing and fiber. And this is just something that needs to, a concept needs to be applied to everything, soil to soil. So the Fiber Shed is an awesome company. Well, nonprofit organization. Speaking of awesome companies, how many people here drink guayaki? All right, all right. All right, so did you know that they're reforesting the Amazon rainforest with their farmers? Yeah. That's how they work. They have fair trade so that the farmers there actually can afford to not destroy their surroundings. Because all these other countries where they're slashing, burning, they can't make enough to take a break from that to even think about doing something different because their kids are starving. So we need to create other options. And we need, you know, we need to operate ethically and show them how to do these things. Um, the green wave farming, vertical farming in the ocean. Have you guys heard of this? This has gotten a lot of press lately. Um, this is Long Island Sound. I grew up five minutes off the sound. Um, he's selling the kelp back to the farmers and because it's taking up the nitrates from all those lawns that are on Long Island and the Hamptons, those giant lawns. And so, if he's taking those nitrates back up in those kelp and selling it back to them as fertilizer. I'm a little bit concerned with that he's selling food. It's the Long Island Sound. Um, we really need to be cycling that. So we let this all, we cut it, we grow it and cut it, we grow and cut it, and we've the soil, the foundation of the coasts. And There's actually, do you guys know there's four different ocean soils? I had to look that up a while ago. I, I wasn't sure, but yeah, there are soils in the ocean, and we really need to rebuild that carbon base to the ocean, because all that mercury and all those toxins in the fish, if we just go and eat them, then we're saying, yes, we will filter that toxin, just give it here. you know. And so if, if we want to avoid cancer and autoimmune diseases and all these things, we can't be the filters. We have to filter it in, in, in nature and let these things build up and clean the water themselves. And they will, as uh, all those things return to the soil and all those things return um, and, and get cleaned successionally as the years go by. So we really need to be making microclimates all along our coasts. We need to create uh, like barriers, like artificial reefs, reefs around our coasts. And then we need to be do, doing vertical farming inside and outside those. We need to be uh, bringing back our wetlands. We need to be protecting our estuaries. We need to be basically encouraging the nature to take off. You be back? OK, um, hopefully. Um, so we really need to focus on the basis of this, because the ocean has 50% of the carbon dioxide. Because diffusion, right? That was one of the processes. They've got The ocean's got 50% of the uh, carbon dioxide that was released in the atmosphere, and that's why it's acidifying. It's not acidic, it's still alkaline, but it's slightly less alkaline, and that's what's making it so they can't form shells, it's what's bleaching all the coral reefs. Alright, so another thing we need to uh, keep in mind is the eight forms of capital. So um, intellectual, spiritual, social, material, financial, living, cultural, uh, um, intellectual. We only only talk about financial capital in our society. Um, and that's a real problem because there's a lot of people in old folks' homes with experiential capital, intellectual capital, spiritual capital, social capital. Um, and we're just letting them go to waste. We've got so many people that are our elders that could be teaching us. But in our society, we don't value that anymore. And that's why. We, you know, instead of keeping our elderly in our home with us, in our families, and retaining their their value and passing it on to our grandchildren or great grandchildren, we've separated. So, social, uh, and this is the stickiest. I know, and economic seems stickiest. It's actually not, because as soon as they start a business that everyone gets excited about, everyone buys into it before they can change the laws. to to thwart us and then suddenly we've got this whole changeover and everyone who's in business that is nimble enough goes, okay, jump, and they they join you. And so actually economically we can switch things fast, it's the social, that's the real issue. It's when we have to work with people across their property boundaries, across their, their beliefs and all these things, that's when things get really, really messy. In China, um, the way they got over that with the Lus plateau was they gave them the land. Pretty crazy, right? We're talking about China. I thought they gave them say over which land they could choose, and then they gave them like I think 99-year leases for their families on the plots. So by empowering the people by decentralizing control, they were able to get the people on board pretty amazing. You don't need to tap that. All right. So, nonviolent communication. Nonviolent communication, if you've not heard of it, is very simple in that it speaks to people's needs and stays away from you are that. It stays away from accusations. It stays away from like you made me feel blah, right? It stays away from that. Instead, it speaks to what your needs are. And then it tries to recognize and empathize with their needs and when you do that it changes things fundamentally and so you have um, Marshall Rosenberg you know he's like negotiating uh, between two different tribes in Africa where they literally killed each other and they have family members and feuds that have been going on for you know generations and within an hour he's settling it because they couldn't communicate their actual needs they could only see enemy images and then put them in front of the other person and see that enemy image. They couldn't free their minds because it was the language. we don't have a word for it, it doesn't exist in our minds. we don't have a picture for it, we can't make it happen. So nonviolent communication is absolutely amazing. Um, This is a restorative circle. Uh, It's very much like applied nonviolent communication. Restorative justice is very similar as well um, and much more traditional. these restorative circles uh, are being used in governments. I think it was 17 or so governments at the time that I read about this. Um, so there's this thing called sociocracy. Has anyone heard of this? Okay, so it's called a deeper democracy, and um, it's uh, it builds towards unanimous consent. And a lot of times that can be problematic depending on how you set up your your systems. Um, but it uses self-organizing systems, so people. Get together based around common interests, and they they make proposals and discuss them until they come to a unanimous decision. If you have been to a certain communities, intentional communities that have used this, there's some that love it, and some that are like, it doesn't work for us. So that's why there's this thing called holacracy, which tries to apply the way that environments develop to human develop. I mean, cities without city planners, what are, do cities just like figure it out? They just grow. We do it anyway. We self-organize. Humans do it naturally. So um, he figured this guy. This guy figured this out. Um, Holism is a concept. Um, uh, what's uh, Smuts? Um, The J.C. Smuts, the South African Prime Minister came up with Um, and it's this idea that everything is part of a whole and a whole in itself containing other wholes and everything's interrelated so a whole actually puts roles and goals ahead of consensus so you could understand in a business how this would streamline things instead of it being like uh, about whether you agree with me It's like, this is going to help the company um, plant more trees. And this is why I proposed this proposal. And so we're suddenly not talking about, uh, we're talking about the company's goals. We're talking about their role as the planner for this. And they actually, the, the planner who's in charge of that thing, whatever it is, has final say. And then people who decide the roles can switch their role if there becomes a problem or something but literally, their role is dominant. And it's very, it's very interesting because it uses self organizing systems, it has a defined constitution. So people are held to those specific goals and roles. It's fascinating, it's something worthwhile checking out. Um, we need to really explore these tools on a greater level and start prob- uh, uh, troubleshooting and problem solving with them so we can continue expanding because they're brand new. Zappos is a company using them. I know about 20 other companies using Holacracy. Um, Basically, uh, the CEO has to cede authority. They have to give up authority constitutionally for the uh, company. It's very interesting. And it's new. So it's super fascinating. Um, And it's all around this idea of decentralization. Uh, The world is too complex for centralization to work. One person, no matter how brilliant, can't decide for everyone how to live. And the more laws we create, the more we impinge upon behavior. We're dictating more and more behavior than we are actual legality in our society. So that's why we have a breakdown of public ed, large governments, global corporations, large energy grids, global food systems, scarcity economies, and allopathic medicine and more. That's why, you know, antibacterial soaps don't work the way they used to. You know what I mean? Uh, because we're seeing things in a centralized way. Yeah, just, just spray it all. We'll just get rid of it. Yeah. Nature's going to figure that one out because you're creating a monoculture. So, this idea of monoculture is really totalitarianism of nature. Um, and so, it's, it's more uniform, it's easier to control and dictate. Yeah. Because no one gets to say anything. No freedom, right? That's that's what they're doing. It's a totalitarian uh, field. Um, but when something goes wrong, it spreads just as fast and uniformly. Just like that, uh, you know, aquaponic setup. You put a little drop of contaminant in it. It doesn't leave, right? It's a closed loop system. The world is like this, um, especially when when there's nothing nothing but the same system it just moves smoothly through and that's what we've been designing right we need to streamline our our manufacturing and delivering and it ended up turning into a way to pass, pass around um uniformity and that the thing is we have these things uh ignorance viruses diseases racism violence fear distrust environmental collapse and extinction all because of this uniformity. They're uniformly spreading. They're spreading like wildfire right now. Luckily at the same time, other things are spreading. Um you guys see Detroit? What was the what were they what was their monoculture? Automobiles. Automobiles. And when it failed, the city went with it. Monoculture. Potato Fam. The sixth greatest map the sixth you know greatest mass extinction. It's because we're creating something that cannot abide the diversity. We are the middle. <coughs> the lighter, grayer are our, our feet, our animals. We're feeding off those. The green dots or what's left of nature. Those are the wild animals. That's elephants right there. And this is by weight. Yeah. Not many left. So going back to this. So we're really worried about, right? Where's all the diversity and complexity that it once was, right? Nature is diverse and complex. But it's not a monoculture. It's not simple. We got to embrace complexity if we're going to do anything, both in nature and society. We need this diversity for stability and growth. And so, you know, I mean, like, how are we going to do this? Well, we're going to apply permaculture. We're going to apply our principles, what we believe, and we're going to live by our ethics, knowing that we can take care of ourselves, our community the earth and the future. So one of the ways we're going to do is through education. We're going to spread this information. In, and that's why I have spent um, this all this time writing these books, um, creating the K through um, 12 arc. That's why I've worked with Elaine Ingram. This is uh, just one of the cool things that we created. You guys know when we till, we, we chop up all the fungi, right? We pulverize the soil. And so bacteria are the ones that are left. Well, when that's the case, they only produce nitrates. That's their, that's their waste. And so you create weeds. So tilling creates weeds. And then like acidic soils is where all like, you know, the evergreens are. And so when you plant under your evergreens, your brassicas, and you're like, why didn't it work? They're a little opposite. You know what I mean? Stuff like this, just simple stuff like this that, um, like the layers of a food forest. If people don't know that if you don't occupy that layer, nature will. That's what weeds are. They're trying to fill in all the spots, repair the damage we do. Um, Stuff like this. Do you guys know that you can grow uh, bananas 6,000 feet up in the Andes in the middle of winter? Yeah, with stuff like this. Do you guys know that the world everywhere, 4 feet deep, is 52 degrees? It's called the thermal constant. That's why those earth-sheltered gardens and greenhouses work so well. Um, Have you guys heard of Ragged Shoots? Have you guys actually heard of Free Energy? Because they don't want you to know about it because it's real. Um, This is Ragged Shoots. You guys can look this up on the internet. It's in Ontario. It operated for seven years was only um, uh, repaired twice. And it was decommissioned by an insurance company and everyone in the town has no idea how they got away with it. So it's the town's pride and still is, and it's cobalt uh, in in Ontario, and so there's a cobalt mine shaft, water drops down it and has bubbles in it, it goes laterally, those bubbles rise, it settles out, and then it becomes compressed air forever. So in other words, the water's coming down here, it's coming out here, it's going out there, it's coming out pressure release, so it's got this geyser, but it's because that pressurized air could turn a turbine forever. It's just falling water on a stream. That's all it is. Detroit has systems like this already built into their infrastructure. We've got all those gates and channels and stuff for their water. So we could create this. I mean, the whole idea with Seattle putting turbines in, right? They could create air pressure easily, just with a, with a drop. And so, and and we can magnify it on top of that, like. Uh, uh, Mr. Thessalonian has some things on on YouTube that are pretty impressive. Here's it applied to a city. What happens if all the skyscrapers' gray water or rainwater, if they allow it to wick into the building, got focused on top of a four-story building and we dropped it and aerated it with tubes all the way down, so they get a lot of air in there. Well, you'd have compressed air feeds into a uh, uh, um, a turbine generates electricity for the building or multiple buildings or just the lights. You know what I mean? We're going to have to use things in piecemeals and decide which goes where um, depending on where we are and what we're doing. But this water gets filtered by life. Fish, aquatic plants, soil. And then it becomes the apartment's reservoir. And so this becomes their their, their toilets. This becomes their, you know what I mean, their gray water. Or you can refine it even further and make it their drinking water. But the point is is that we have the options all around us. We are just not designing for them. We're not allowing people to experiment. And we're preventing innovation. So my new book, um, which is a high school textbook, um, it's almost done. Um, It's it's really, really exciting. Those were excerpts from the book. Almost all the pictures that aren't cited, and most of the ones that are cited, are from my book. that's gonna come out uh, hopefully in in two weeks. I will send it to the printer, and then it'll be like a month or so before it comes to me. But that's just life. <laughs> um, this is uh, it's 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 an absolutely incredible book. Like I said, it is beyond my ability. It is involved, you know, over 20 different uh, experts and a lot more people on top of that. Um, I typically use social media as a as a way to leverage research. Um, and and so I have like thirty thousand friends on, on Twitter and I've got friends on, on Facebook and stuff. And so it's incredible when you actually leverage that many people, you know, the amount of information and reaction you get. And so this cover this cover is like I think twentieth cover. I don't know. I keep going through it and showing people. Um, this is the Forgotten Food Forest, this is about a 3,000 year old food forest in Morocco that's real, um, and I just did a, a, a children's book with a, a Disney animator, um, and we're almost done with it, but it's real. We can go and visit it. I want to go and film it, but Jeff Lawton keeps filming it, so I don't really feel the need to. Um, I've got my gardening course, um, I have an eight week course uh, that is like pretty darn intensive, um, there's videos. Uh, I, I provide you know 500, 600 pages of, of of reading. It's like a full on course and everything. But I only charge a hundred dollars. You can. I charge a hundred dollars for a group, and I let people with economic hardship in for free. Um, uh, people got to know the information. You got to make it cheap enough that like anyone can do it in a group. You know what I mean? Get five people together. A hundred dollars is nothing. So I come from an the last place that we lived was Madera County. It's the sixth most violent county in America. It's the lowest paying county for teachers in California. It's where I was a, a teacher. And so it has to be affordable because I need my kids to take it too. So that's how I see it and that's how I live. And I think that's what needs to happen. Um, I have a course that's over 16 hours um, as well and it has cooking and seed saving, critical thinking. It's being used in K through 12 uh, settings from like elementary schools at El Diablo School District, which was written up in Permaculture Magazine North America, I think the second issue, and then um, or first, I can't remember. Um, and then it's being also sourced by international baccalaureate programs like the International um, Schools of Los Angeles, the you know the French, the French English one. Um, they're using it. They want to make permaculture their core guiding uh, philosophy. We gotta also teach by example. We can't just be educators; we have to live it. And this can be hard. Um, I mean, I just moved. Do I have a garden set up instantly? No. Right? You know, you can't just do it instantly. I just moved, (laughs) so I left a garden that is two acres uh, and uh, over 100 trees. Um, It is so full of food right now; can't even handle it. This is it. This you can see really clearly here. uh, I have uh, these swales, which are perpendicular to the flow of water. And in California, everyone's lost their garden topsoil. I didn't. Um, These filled up and soaked in, so none of the water left my property. And all that whole Sky River thing didn't affect me. So these are all just trees. And what happens is I grow my annuals around my trees. Um, This shows you my earthworks right here. That's flat, so that it pacifies the water, makes it still and soak in. And then this is what I do. That's the same area. I'll go back and forth here. And go! It's the same spot. And that's perennials hiding in those annuals. And below those annuals I have winter crops that are growing just fine because it's not actual heat that a lot of winter crops are afraid of. It is the light. It is the solar radiation. And so you diffuse the light and then suddenly you get full heads of cabbage in in the middle of summer with 120 degree weather. Yeah. So I figured that out this last year, which was really cool. Uh, Make the impossible possible for people. We have to inspire people if we are to make change. This corn was deemed impossible to grow in North America. But it's because they wanted to grow it in a field. I grew it on the dark side of a hill underneath an oak because I ne- knew it needed less than 12 hours of sunlight. Here, we'll show it to you. Too. And this corn, as you can see on here, is absolutely gorgeous. No one's been able to adapt it, no North American, until me. I adapted it open pollinated it outside. I didn't feed it anything, I didn't even amend the soils. So, we have to show people what's impossible to, the, to their minds is possible, because right now we have a world filled with doubt and fear that feels like it's impossible. And they're, they're emotionally there, and so it is impossible for them. What we need to do is inspire them to change, because it is possible. This is Grant Schultz's farm in, um, in Iowa City. He is converting an area, just like uh, just like uh, Mark Shepard did, into into a perennial savanna. Impossible things are possible. This is Masanobu Fukuoka. In 20 years, he became one of the most competitive rice farmers in America. I mean, uh, in Japan. (laughs) (laughs) Where are we? Two hours in now? Um, uh, So. Masanubu Fukuoka, he's the natural farmer. One straw revolution. He started sowing, he's sowing rice into his barley. He sowed rice directly into his clover. He didn't till. He ran a farm by hand. He didn't keep his patties flooded the whole season so that they would bubble methane and smell like awful. Right? I mean, it smells anaerobic, which smells like, oh no, oh no, no. Um, well he figured out how you don't even need to do that and his, you'd, actually his, his rice was shorter but it had more grains on the head and there were large grains and the roots were white instead of black and the roots went deep instead of they're just short So, and he proved it by just doing it and he had the faith before any of us could prove anything and obviously he was a scientist he was an agronomist and, and, but he really had faith, and he did it, and he proved it, and he lived it, and he went all over the world trying to teach people about it before he died. And then by experience. We need people to experience these things. We need to invite them in. Um, my kids um, have grown up with me setting up a fully, a fully resilient garden in the middle of an area where people say you can't garden. PBS has come and filled my gardens twice because they just don't even know what to think when they come over here. They're like, what is this? And I have that point and that. I each I'm like, all right, it's confusing to you, so it's confusing to the guys who are going to come eat my food because I don't use fences. I'm in the middle of, out, right outside of Yosemite, and I don't use fences. Meanwhile, deer are everywhere, and there's bobcats that are huge to eat my chickens. Um, but." we got to inspire them. we got to get them excited. It's not that hard. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing what nature can do. <laughs> it's amazing the variety, the excitement, and the colors that are out there. Um, and, you know, get them involved because it will be hard, but in the end, it will be the most valuable thing that they can do with their time because they will recognize how to fix things, how things work, And how to take care of themselves. And that's, for now, a sketch of what a regenerative future can be. Thanks, guys.